I'm excited this morning to, to say we have a, a wonderful speaker here today, many of you are familiar with. It's been a little while since he's been with us, but, uh, but Pastor Lanny has, uh, has made his way up the, up the coast. He was up here for a wedding, and he graciously offered to, to come and speak this morning. I'm just so thankful for him to be here with us. I'm looking forward to what the, what the Lord has to say through us through Pastor Lanny. So if you would, please, everyone, if, whether you're home or here, please rise. We want to show honor to the one who brings the word of the Lord to us and welcome Pastor Lanny Clark to the stage. As I begin this morning, I want to tell you a story. It's an abbreviated story about a circumstance that happened for me back in 2006. During my educational journey, I had the opportunity to meet and befriend an adjunct professor who was... Um, describing his life and his introduction to my class in a very parallel way my own life had unfolded. And as he talked about the kinds of uh, journeys he'd been on, the personalities he's known, the teachers who influenced him, I'm thinking, me too, me too, me too. So I said, I got, I got to know this guy. So I invited him out to dinner midweek through our, uh, our class down in Florida. And uh, apparently... I prophesied to him during the meal. Now, I have no recollection of that, but it was so significant for him that he went back to his hotel room and scribed it as best he could remember. The following Monday, when he returned to his own uh, local situation, the rug of life was pulled out from underneath him when his wife left for a younger man. He resigned his mega church. He went to live in a small apartment. He went through three very challenging years. And during that time, I would call him encouraging, I'd have him up to visit and to preach for us. And in the circumstances that unfolded, he said to me, Lanny, that prophetic word that you gave to me was like the life preserver I found after I'd been thrown overboard in the Atlantic Ocean. I had nothing to cling to but that word. You know how often I looked at it? Every single day. Some three years later, I was able to attend his remarriage ceremony to a delightful Christian woman. And he's gone on to build a second life. And it's been a wonderful relationship through these years. Now, I told you that story to make this point. Sometimes when life seems like a tumultuous sea, what we need is a prophetic word to hang on to. The kind of thing that will keep us afloat in the storms of life when everything around us seems to have lost, we've lost our bearings. There's nothing around us that looks normal anymore. Now, as it happens, we all have access to a prophetic word. Now, we call this prophetic word the Holy Bible. But sometimes we fail to recognize that in its context, it is a prophetic word. For instance, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are called the Pentateuch. And they are written by one individual called Moses, of whom God says to him, there's coming a day when I will raise up a prophet just like you. So Moses is identified by God as a prophet. And in speaking that to him, he's speaking of the Messiah who will come millennia later. Now, 
As you start to read through the scriptures, you find that there are something called the major prophets and the minor prophets, and they make up a huge context of the Old Testament. When you look at First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles, you're looking at prophetic scriptures written by Samuel and Gad and Nathan. So when we talk about the Bible, we're talking about a prophetic word, something that does not change. Jesus said of this, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. God has said nothing is going to change. That the covenant which I have uttered with my lips, I will not alter. So in the tumult in which we presently find ourselves, both culturally, society, and personally, we have a word of certainty to which we can cling because it is not going to change. Do you understand me? It is not going to change. Our understanding will mature by revelation of the Holy Spirit, but the scripture is settled. God is going to stand behind his word. My word have I exalted above my own name, he says of himself. Now, when you come to the Gospels, you are looking at the record of the person and work of the prophet that God said would come. He's even acknowledged as a prophet by his own people, the prophet out of Nazareth called Jesus. There are other world religions that look to the personage of Jesus Christ and they call him a great prophet and a great teacher. When you get into the epistles, you start to see the activity of the Holy Spirit and the spirit of wisdom and revelation. When you, when you read Paul, you can't help but notice that he's always talking about that which I have received from the Lord, I commend to you. And then when you get to Revelation, you go, what does that mean? As we consider the circumstances of life in which we presently find ourselves, we need to hold on to the reality that the scriptures are, in fact, given to us in every generation of humanity so that we have a certain aspect of security we can find in any generation. Now, as, as we think about recent topics, I've been monitoring uh, what Pastor Jay has been teaching, what Pastor Steve have been teaching. I'm, I'm really encouraged by both. Steve is being careful to talk to us out of the Apostles' Creed, and he's speaking to the historic doctrines that sort of become the, uh, the guardrail, guardrails on the road of life for us. Then Pastor Jay has been trying to help us understand that joy and peace and love have, have direct impact on the way we are to see ourselves and to view others. Once you come to Christ, once you've been reconciled to the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you take on the nature of your Father, and His nature is? I have taught this before. This is a pop quiz. I expect an intelligent response from people who have heard me say His nature is love. So God's nature is? There you go. And once you get that, it's the intention of the person of the Holy Spirit to claw his way through your selfishness and expose the love of God through you to others. In our, in our sense of um, holding tightly to the Scripture, we say things like, the Scripture, all Scripture is given by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Any of you ever gone to see a physician? Do you remember your doctor's name? I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Sai and that he would be a close companion of yours for the rest of your life. Dr. Sai. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. 
It is the intention of the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and awaken you to what you don't yet know. And let, Scripture says, let, it, let everybody know this. Anybody who thinks they know anything should recognize they don't know anything the way they ought to know it. Now, in that, if, you, if you'll take that philosophy and own it, it will keep you from becoming crystallized in your doctrine. It will keep you from stopping the process of being a lifetime learner. Because no matter what we think we know today, there's more to know about what we think we know than we know. One of my professors was fond of using the obvious. He says, you don't know what you don't know. And that's true of us. And so the spirit of wisdom and revelation should be our daily guide. As many as are led by the spirit, these are the... I can't hear you. The sons of God, yes. Now, when we talk about holding on to the scripture as our guide, I want to make an observation out of the life I've lived with people. How many of you believe the Bible is true by show of hands? Okay. That's pretty much all of you raising your hand so no one else will see you not raising your hand. Got it. There's a difference between saying, I believe the Bible is true, and saying, I believe the Bible is true for me. Because I have run into multiple situations in my adult life where people agree that the scripture is true, except this part is not true for me. And they allow the notion of God's grace to excuse the obvious sin they embrace, saying it's okay, grace covers a multitude of sins. Grace covers a multitude of sins from which we have repented. It does not cover sins we are actively pursuing. Now, once you get that clear in your head, it'll start to help you see the world around you a little, with a little more precision. Because you cannot have it both ways. Once you're born again, once you're reconciled to the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus, and the, and the gospel is very simple. You see it over and over and over. It is the death according to scriptures, the burial and the resurrection according to scriptures. It's a historical event that actually occurred in time and space and became the precipitating cause for the change of the human condition through the atonement satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other name under, given among men under heaven whereby we might be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, you become your father's representative. Now, if you are your father's representative, ought you not be aligned with your father's instructions? And here's the rub. The Holy Spirit spends the rest of our natural lives trying to conform us to that image. How many of you know it's painful? Whew. My, uh, my father-in-law had a jacket. He was a... Uh, submarine sailor in world war ii survived depth charges and that kind of stuff and his and his jacket read on the back i know i'm going to heaven i've already been through hell i like the little phrase i saw it recently in print again it when you're going through hell keep going <laughs> <laughs> 
because some of the difficulties we're going to face in this life are going to challenge everything we thought we understood about life. Now, let's assume for a moment that you accept the scripture as the authoritative word of God to your life and that it has instructions for us that we must receive, embrace, and allow to transform us. Let's just assume for argument we're in that place. I want to take us to a specific scripture in the book of James. James chapter 2 and verse 1. James writes this. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He goes on to say, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over here or sit by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Partiality. If you show partiality, if you make unjust distinctions between people by treating one person better than another, that is partiality. Now, we have a new word for that word in this era. Anybody care to guess what it is? If you show partiality to another on the basis of anything that looks like appearance, what do we call that today? It's called racism. The Bible uses the word partiality because the Oxford Dictionary identifies the first usage of the word racism in 1902. But the scripture has spoken about it since before Jesus came into the earth. Now, now the apostle is calling to our attention that if you look at anybody and judge them on any circumstance, you're committing sin. And in particular, he's talking about it in the body of Christ because he's addressing my brethren. Now, <clears throat> I'm going, to, I'm going to make a few statements. You can wrestle with them on your own later. But 
If racism is defined in the authority of the word of God as personal sin, if that's true, did we just read it? If the word of God defines racism as personal sin, can a system be racist? The answer is no. Why? Because a system is amoral. It is just a system. The system functions based on the heart of the people who occupy the system. That's why you can look at South Africa and say apartheid was a sin because it was racist, but it was supported. The racist attitude of people was supported by a system, but the system itself was not racist. Struggle with it on your own time, but you'll come to clarity on these things. Now then, can you reason with sin? The answer is no, because sin is irrational. If you can't reason with sin, can you negotiate with it politically? No. You can't reason with the irrational, because sin is irrational. We do things as sinners that are irrational. We sow death into relationships that we want to have. Why? Because there's a sin nature at work in us. And that's the human condition. Self-promotion, self-provision, self-protection is the human condition. In the body of Christ, we're called out of that dynamic into a relationship with one another that should put an alternative kingdom on display. And yet, even in the body of Christ, we still find ourselves divided over things that should have been dealt with in the cross. Can you repent on behalf of the sin of another? I have no basis for believing that I can take any of the current news events and repent for the sin of the perpetrator. Because that's his sin. And I can't undo his sin with my repentance for his wrongdoing. He has to come to grips with that. And if he doesn't, society is supposed to be chastening him for his misbehavior for our benefit. That's called the rule of law. However, in the kingdom, we have another law. It's called the royal law. And the royal law is the law of love, where James says, and spe specifically repeating that which Jesus said, which is in the Testaments, both new and old, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In our present cultural upheaval, We have this issue of partiality, and there's all kinds of uh, darkened understandings trying to precipitate some kind of negotiated peace that simply can't happen. And here's the reason. The scripture makes it very, very clear that the human heart is deceitfully wicked. Now, what does it mean to be deceived? It means you can't see the truth. 
Have any of you ever had to deal with a human being who was so blind to their own arrogance, you couldn't even speak to them about it? De deceit is like that. You can't break through deceit with an argument because you're deceived. And when you're deceived, you can't see that you're deceived because it's the reality in which you live. It is life as you know it, life as you have experienced it. For you, it's called normal. Now, God makes this statement concerning the deceitfulness of sin. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Here's our hope. I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind. I search the heart and I test the mind even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Now, I have set all this up to take us to a particular passage of Scripture and ruminate on it to be able to see how God deals with partiality. Are you willing? Trust me, this is going to get very personal. In Acts chapter 10, 9 and 10, we have an encounter initiated by the Holy Spirit to the person of Peter, who we call the Apostle. So let's run through this and take a look at what God is attempting to do in the mind of his representative. Now, the story begins for us when Peter is hungry and he goes up onto the roof to wait for food to be presented to him. Now, it's, it's important we recognize that he was hungry because in response to that natural circumstance, the Holy Spirit initiates a uh, encounter for Peter. And some of you will remember the encounter. Others of you will just follow along. In this um, situation, Peter falls into a trance. And in the trance, there is a sheet being lowered from heaven. Now, keep in mind, Peter is a fisherman, right? So the sheet that's being loaded, lowered, is most probably a sail from a ship for which he would know. And in it are, are what he calls a bunch of unclean animals based on the dietary law of the Jewish people. And in that sheet, as he glances upon it, he hears the Spirit of God say, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And immediately he responds out of his context, No, Lord, I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. The scripture says this event occurs three times. And finally, the Spirit of God says to him, don't call unclean and unholy what I call clean and holy. Now, as he's sitting there thinking about this, there's some guys that arrive at the front door. Now, these people have been sent a couple of days before from the house of one um, Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, a God-fearing man who in his morning prayers gets an angelic visitation. And the angel says to him, your prayers have been heard. Now, send to Joppa 
at the house of Simon the Tanner and ask for one Simon Peter by name. And he will tell you what you need to hear. So the centurion sends three of his uh, representatives. They show up as Peter is ruminating on this vision. And the Spirit of God says to him, I sent them, go with them, doubting nothing. So they come into the house, they have a meal together. The next day they leave and they head for Cornelius' house. And when Peter arrives with some of his Jewish brethren, by the way, Cornelius falls down at his feet and Peter says, get up, get up. I'm just a man just like you. Now, remember, the Spirit of God had said to him, don't call unclean what I call clean. And so Peter is he is on his way into something and he stands there at having been received by Cornelius's house. And he says, now I understand because Cornelius has just recounted for him what happened to him three days ago when the angel showed up. Peter just had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. Cornelius has had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. Cornelius got a house full of people there and he's saying to him, the angel said, you would tell us what we need to know. So tell us the message you have from God. Does that sound like a divine setup to you? Don't you wish it worked that way for you every day? This is a very, very important story for a variety of reasons. Now then, Peter begins to talk, and in his talk, he talks about the Jesus who is the atoning sacrifice of God for all mankind through his death, burial, and resurrection, and that all who believe on him might be saved. And at that point, they all begin to speak in tongues. And Peter is taken aback. He said, now I know at the door, after this event, he goes, now I understand. And so he says to the Jewish brethren who are with him, can we forbid baptism seeing they have received the gift just like us? I want to, um, well, let's go ahead. They baptize them, and the scripture says that the apostles and elders throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received uh, the gospel. So Peter goes back to Jerusalem with his little several companions, and immediately he's called to task. The apostles and elders upbraid him for going into the house of a Gentile and eating with them. So Peter begins to tell the whole story. You read it. The chron chronicle goes through there and it concludes like this. And so it got very, very quiet. And the circumcised said, well, it appears God has granted salvation to the Gentiles. Now, let's stop right there for a moment and consider something. What do you suppose might have been the response of Peter prior to the vision of the sheet in this circumstance, if either Jew or Gentile had come to him and said, Peter, you need to repent of your partiality. 
Now, before you put your 2021 perspective on a first century question, consider this. In the Jewish world, there were two kinds of people, Jews and non-Jews. That was it. Didn't matter if you were a Roman or an Asian or a, a, a Mexican, didn't matter. There were only two kinds of people, Jews and non-Jews. The entire culture, the society, the religious commitments of the Orthodox Jews maintained that separation. All right. So had you come to Peter, who had grown up in that culture and tried to confront him about his partiality, you should expect him to say, what partiality? All right, let me help you. I was raised in Mobile, Alabama. In that culture, from age two weeks until I left for the military at age 18. That was my culture. Those were my people. My people were basically semi-educated <clears throat> and poverty-stricken. Hand-to-mouth was the way we lived. Dirt roads and pick, you know, second-hand, third-hand pickup trucks, construction work, all that jazz. <clears throat> Drinking on Friday. That was the nature of the culture I grew up in. Was it racist? The answer is yes. Did I know it was racist? The answer is no. Why? Because it was the only life I knew. Are you following me? Until your partiality is challenged from an outside perspective, all you know is life as you know it. You do not know what you do not know. Now, I, I was crafted that environment. There were three kinds of people in that environment. There were the whites, the Jews, and the non-whites. And it didn't matter what kind of non-white you were, you were all the N-word. What kind of N are you? Now understand, nobody thought any differently about that language. Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? There was no alternative point of view. That was the point of view. And when that's the only point of view available to you, that's life as you know it. So had you come to Peter and said, you need to repent of your partiality, what would he say? What partiality? Because everything was already cemented in place, and it was the only life he knew, until the Holy Spirit challenged his point of view. And at that point, he begins a journey. Go with them, doubting nothing, for I've sent them. Now I know that in every nation where men fear God, God accepts them. Now I understand. It's a journey of revelation that the Lord takes you through. When I left Mobile, Alabama, my, my company commander in boot camp was a Filipino. First one I'd ever lay his eyes on. When I got aboard ship, my shop supervisor was a black man. First black man I ever had to take orders from. 
By the time I make it to the Philippines, I'm now being shown around by my Filipino shipmates. Do you see what's happening here? As you travel the world, as you get as you get into other cultures, there's something that happens to you. Do you are you aware that there are communities within the United States in which you cannot find any ethnic person of any kind? They have never seen one except on TV. Now, contrast the story I just told you about my upbringing with my wife, San Diego, or, or Pastor, Pastor Jay. You guys should let, let Pastor Jay testify to you sometime because he, he has, a, he has a, an inheritance in the legacy of his life dating back to family members who were responsible for facilitating what's called the Underground Railroad. The history of his life, the genealogy, is about what we would call racial reconciliation. But in Patty's life and in Jay's life, they grew up. There were Mexicans and Asians and Chinese, and they grew up to it. They were friends. You didn't say, this is my Chinese friend or, or this is my Mexican friend. They were just friends because the culture in which they were raised was dramatically different from the culture in which I was raised, even in the continental United States. Are you following me? We have got to be able to see beyond our context to realize if we're going to represent the Lord in His kingdom, there are, there are things about the way we live, the way we speak, the activities we get involved in, that require of us a broader context than we have granted ourselves in times past. Now, if I could uh, move on from that, I want us to try to begin to apprehend the circumstances that afford us the liberty to escape. And in those circumstances, we are obliged to pay attention to the kinds of things that happen around us. I am not responsible for what's going on in the United States of America. Okay? That's outside my sphere. But I have responsibilities before the Lord for that nation of which I'm a part by His appointing my times and boundaries. For instance, are you aware you're supposed to pray for those in authority over, for kings, those in authority over, that you might live a quiet and tranquil life in peace and dignity? You ever read that of Tim? Okay. And within that passage, it says, because God wants them to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There are two things there. He wants them to be born again test their hearts, and that they would come to the knowledge of the truth, testing their mind. Now, he does that for all of us. And his intention is that once this has been ignited, this gets changed. That's why you read in, in Romans chapter 12, the renewing of your mind. Renewing it. Why? Because your mind is hosed up from the cultural blindness that has inculcated us in whatever our respective contexts were or is or was. Now, when I pray, I pray specifically that they would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
because that's my responsibility as the Lord's representative, because that's his express will for them. Do you understand? And when I pray in accordance with his will, what does the scripture promise me? That I have the petition for which I ask. Now, in this national stuff, we've got the local stuff. That is, how local is your local? Why don't we start at your house? Why don't we look at your neighborhood? Why don't we think about our town? Because that is our appointed metron. So how should we be engaging our local neighborhood, our local town, as representatives of the kingdom? How about this? I remember when Pat and I were freshly baptized in the Holy Spirit, was zealous for just everything God was doing, and we'd have regular encounters with the Holy Spirit almost on a daily basis. One of the things we were provoked to do was to walk our neighborhood and just pray over the houses and their occupants on our street. Not the entire city of Pensacola, but our local situation. Okay. And we found that on numerous occasions, the Holy Spirit would awaken something in us in our morning encounters with him. And it would be like, oh, wow, look at this from the word or, oh, wow, I just had this thought. And then within 24 hours, the person for whom that word was intended showed up in our conversation somewhere. There's a dynamic about being salt and light that requires participation and action. Our participation with him and our response to him. One of the uh, <clears throat> blessings that we have in our new location is that we're finally in a neighborhood of neighbors. They talk to one another. They stop on the street corner. They wave. They shout across the fence. You know, they're, they're walking their dogs and here the dogs are carrying on and then these people are talking about their dogs, you know. There's actually a willingness to engage one another. And our, and our community is multiracial, for which I'm thrilled about that. So when Lynn comes walking by, having had, he's got a boot on because of ankle surgery and his crutch, I get to pray for him. When... Uh, when Judy has a need next door, I get to say, look, I got hands that'll help you. She's 77 years old and a widow. I'm here for you. What can I do for you? Jake, one of the things that I would commend to you for follow up is just take a look at the importance of food in the New Testament. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door, knock anyone who opens to me. I will come in and sup with him. When the church was birthed in Acts, what did we find them doing? Breaking bread from house to house. When they're, when they're corrected in, in uh, Corinthians for their misbehavior at the dinner table. Food is one of the ways we connect. Because something happens at the table that doesn't happen in this atmosphere. Something happens at the table that doesn't occur in the work cubicle. And we need to be sensitized to the opportunities that are ours as the Lord's representatives to engage people and begin to. Here's a good start. Listen. Listen. I find it so challenging to get people just to listen. Because when you think you know everything, you're composing an answer to a question they haven't asked because you weren't listening.
All of us have stories to tell. I've shared some of mine. Patty's got one. Jay's got another. Katie's got another. But in our present distress, it's very, very important that we begin to assume responsibility for the reality of what is happening in our sphere, our, our domain, that, that area where we are assigned, those relationships that are plentiful around us, and the opportunity to just be a blessing to somebody. Did you know, we, we've watched this so often, it'd be true in any environment where you go. For instance, this is Sunday. Everybody's got their smiley face on. Doesn't matter if they got shot in the heart yesterday, or if they received bad news this morning, or a diagnosis last Thursday. They got their smiley face on. And if all we do is smile at one another, everybody thinks everybody's okay, when we know there's people among us this morning who are hurting. One of the reasons I'm dissatisfied with virtual church is you don't get to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. You don't get to speak that prophetic word that God has for them so their heart will be encouraged. But if we start looking for opportunities to serve, to be a blessing, to, to take a meal, to invite somebody over. Hey, I'm cooking out. Y'all got anything? I got some extra stuff. Come eat with us. <coughs> my oldest son, son youngest son, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> my youngest son loves to cook. And he's got one of those big green eggs. So when he cooks a chicken, he cooks four whole chickens, three of which will be delivered on the street somewhere. It is not uncommon for the doorbell to ring at his house and there'll be a couple from down the street stand there with four wine glasses and a bottle of wine and say, you guys busy? They are creating community in their neighborhood. And it's not that difficult. If, you, if you're challenged about engaging people, let me make this recommendation to you. If you don't know how to make small talk, how to engage in small talk, Brian, stand up, please. If you don't know how to do it, you engage this man right here. Brian Dickerson has a master's degree in saying nothing in many, many words. <laughs> and it puts people at ease. You know, you, you start talking, you start listening, and then eventually they come to the place, look, can I ask you a question? And you're getting below the surface, all right? If, if you're not secure in, in being able to reach out to people, where is Christina? When she comes back, I'll put her on the spot, okay? Because within the body of Christ, we're able to be mentored in those areas we consider to be weakness. Because God has supplied His strength to us for His purposes through us. If, uh, all right, if, if you're, in, thank you, Jimmy, if you're insecure about showing hospitality, let me recommend you hang out with this man and Jane Amber. These guys are hospitality on two feet, and they can show you how to be a gracious recipient of people into your home. There is no reason for us to remain isolated and closed off if we assume our responsibility as the Father's representative. That would have been a good place for an amen. Amen. <clears throat> now, I'm fully aware that I have provoked thought and perhaps emotions 
in this hour. And I'm prepared to take the heat for it. Because if we don't start clinging to the word of God and assume our responsibility as his representatives, then we're going to forfeit an, an amazing opportunity in time and space that's occurring right now. Is it possible that anyone other than me thinks that insanity is running rampant in this culture? You can't expect the irrational to come to rational conclusions. You just can't. You can't expect darkness to reach conclusions that will benefit you. It just, it's not possible. If we are salt and light, we have to be willing to stand up in our identity and who we are in Christ, not some identity people forced upon you, but in who you know you are in Christ. That's the precipitating cause for change. It always has been. If you know anything about history, it's been God's people that precipitate a righteous change. Now, finally, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything, so I don't get excited. In conclusion, I'm also praying for a visitation of the Holy Spirit in my culture that will change culture. Okay? I'm not going to have my hope robbed by 24-7 news. I'm not going to have my confidence in who I am shaken by somebody redefining who I am. I know who I am in the Lord. And I will stand in that as his representative, expecting him to do something if it costs me my life. Because pff, this one's almost over anyway. Has Christina come back? All right. Well, here's the point. If you're insecure about how to reach out to strangers, just walk around the block with that young woman. She doesn't know any strangers. And she will give you a sense of ease. that You can be mentored just by watching. Okay. Now, would you agree you don't know what you don't know? Okay. And I would anticipate that some of us need to be challenged from outside our context needs to be challenged from outside. And the, the surest outside source I rely upon is the Holy Spirit. I don't know what your blindness is, but he knows. I don't know what area of transformation needs to occur in you, but he knows. And my appeal is always engage God, the Holy Spirit, because he is your guide, your teacher, your comforter. He is the one who can give you revelation and wisdom. I've appreciated the invitation, Jay, to be here today. It's always a pleasure to be a guest speaker at our Father's house. <clears throat> and I, I want to express publicly my confidence in you. There's no mess I've made today that you and the Holy Spirit can't clean up after I leave town. That was wonderful. Thank you, Pastor.
This is a challenging hour that we're in. That's not new news to any of us here. And I always appreciate being able to hear the voice from an apostle and how God gives them the ability to speak clarity into moments like this. And I too recognize things get stirred up when we start talking about what Pastor Lanny just shared. But I trust the Holy Spirit to guide you through those wrestlings because he cares about your heart. He's committed to conforming you to the image of Christ. And being stirred up is, is not a problem in and of itself. God has to stir us up. He has to shift us. He has to shake us. We've all been through an amazing shaking over this past, what is this, 18 months now? I don't even know. He's after something in us. And this, is, this topic is not the only thing. It's a particular aspect of what he's been coming after in us. But I would encourage you to go before the Lord in prayer. If you found yourself stirred up today, ask the Holy Spirit, what is it that you want to speak to me, Lord? Because he is speaking to you and you can hear him. And like Pastor Lanny said, no one else knows what's going on in your heart but the Holy Spirit. As we come to communion today, and that's your signal to get your communion ready. If you're like me, you might need five minutes to peel off that top wrapper. Oh, good. This one was easy. Okay. So we come to the communion table today. <clears throat> By the way, let's just take note of that. Pastor Lanny was talking about, in the New Testament, the significance of food. We're coming to the communion table together as the body of Christ. We're connected by his body, by his blood. There's incredible significance in the partaking of that together as one. I want to go into Philippians, or sorry, not Philippians, Ephesians chapter 2. We've read this scripture recently, but I think in the context of, what, of the sharing today, this should hold special significance for us. So Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ... You who once were far away have been drawn near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh. So you heard blood and you heard flesh. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit."
all this reconciliation that is the longing and the desire, both within the church and outside the church, is only realized through the body and blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is the only one who made a way for any of that reconciliation to truly take place. We as the body of Christ have the opportunity to live as he has already opened a way for us. We have the opportunity to consistently come before him in surrender and allow him to unite us as no other system, no other ideology will ever be successful. If we're truly submitted and surrendered to him, his Holy Spirit is going to do a work in us that transforms us into an image that the world can see that reflects our Father and his heart. As we come to the communion table today, let's remember that it's by his body and his blood broken and poured out for us that we have access to one Father, one Spirit, and we are one body. Jesus, I thank you right now. I thank you right now, Lord, as we remember what you have done for us. And we remember in light of what was shared today, Lord, the significance of what you have done for us in this particular aspect of our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would draw us close to you. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would reveal to us things that we need to hear. We need to know from your voice. We cry out to you, Lord, in this hour that you would continue to build your church. We are confident that you will, but we cry out from our hearts that you would continue to build your church in us, Lord, and across the world, that we as the body of Christ would be conformed to your image. We thank you that we have access by one spirit to one Father and that we are one in you. We bless your name, Jesus, as we remember the sacrifice that you paid for us. Amen. Take and eat and drink in the name of Jesus. If you would, I'd just like to give Pastor Lanny a round of applause for coming and sharing with us today. Thank you, sir. I just want to thank you for how you always, always, always consistently bring us back to the perspective of the kingdom, rooted and grounded in the scripture that is a standard for us to live our lives by and to measure every experience that we're having. And you always honor the Holy Spirit, his person and his presence. And I thank you for that standard that you have placed in this house for 40 years. And I'm confident as we continue to move forward that he will uphold what you have sown in here and he's gonna bring forth new fruit in that. So thank you very much. And Patty, thank you too.
all the prayers, all the support, all the encouragement you've been giving so many of us over these years. It is a joy to be with you both today. So thank you. I don't know that we have any prophetic words this morning. No? Okay. If you're in need of prayer this morning, I'm going to be over here on the side. It could be for healing. It could be for you just need prayer for something. I'm going to be over on the side. I'm going to ask those uh, that are prayer ministers to come up here and just to be available because, like Pastor Lanny said, one of the challenges of, of virtual churches, we don't have the opportunity to lay hands on those who are sick and see them made well. But while we're here in person, we do have that opportunity, and I want to take the opportunity to do so. The presence of the Lord has been so wonderful this morning. As we've come before Him in prayer and in praise, He's been with us. His fragrance has been so beautiful. I have an expectancy that He will touch lives where they're needed, and His presence is just so wonderful today. I don't want to miss the opportunity of what He may do. So if you need prayer, I want to invite you forward to that. Now we're going to release. So, Father, I just thank you for your people. I thank you, Lord, confident that you are going to do the good work that you began in each of us, Lord. You're going to bring it to completion. Lord, Lord, I'm thankful for this hour. You've shaken so many things, Lord, but our confidence is in you. Our joy is in you. Our hope is in you. Our faith, our trust is in you. Lord, I ask that you would teach us how to walk by your grace in newer and newer ways, in deeper and deeper ways, Lord. Lord, that you would show us the things that we do not yet know. That it is your joy to reveal to us. Lord, I ask that you would would cause us to be a people that would glorify your name as your representatives here in this place, Lord, and in this hour. I ask that you purify us, Lord. I ask that you would encourage us. I ask that you would strengthen us. Lord, that we might be those who bring a standard of the kingdom into this day, into this hour, into this location, that it would glorify the Father. Amen. God bless you all. If you need prayer, come on forward. Otherwise, hug somebody if they'll take it, and make sure you have an opportunity to say hello to Pastor Lanny. God bless you guys. Goodbye.